Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You probably heard us talk about all the problems and risks that come about when private citizens keep and own wild animals as pets. The laws in some states are more permissive than we would like, hence the huge population of captive tigers spread throughout Texas. But overall, the laws are getting tighter and fewer animals are being subjected to the neglectful and cruel environments that usually go along with private ownership of these animals. But many years ago, when I was a young teen and before most people knew any better, things were quite different. And I actually had a relationship with an exotic pet. I recorded my recollections for my local radio show about a decade ago, and I, th- I think you're going to find it interesting. I did have a close and personal relationship with an exotic pet. It was a bobcat. And at the time, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever and saw absolutely nothing wrong, nothing wrong with the ownership of a wild animal as a pet. And so this is how this little story goes. I became very close to a couple who were friends of my parents and this lovely couple who chose not to have any kids owned this bobcat. Buttercup was her name. Buttercup soon became this couple's child. I would often visit them at their home. We would all have dinner together. We would go on little walks together, the three of us and Buttercup. And mind you, this was not their first bobcat. Before Buttercup was Roberta, whom I did not know. This was in 1962, just a few years before I was born, when they purchased a four-month-old Roberta from a place in Los Angeles called Uncle Jim's Jungle for $350. And back then in 1962, there was uh, no restrictions in owning a bobcat in California. Roberta lived to a nice long age of 16 years. And when they lost Roberta, that's when they got Buttercup, which was in 1978. And the rules and regulations changed somewhat, which made it more difficult to own a bobcat. But my friends were uh, known by the Department of Fish and Game, and the authorities knew how well they treated their first bobcat so the uh, restrictions were waived with them and they were able to purchase their second bobcat this three-week old buttercup who also ended up living until 16 years of age now at this point the laws in california changed again making it virtually impossible for an individual to obtain a bobcat of course if you were if you owned a zoo or a wild animal park that was different but individuals could not obtain one and so my friends ended up getting two domesticated house cats now in catching up with my dear friends last year And them knowing I'm an advocate for the animals, I did ask him to reflect upon his 33 years of experience in owning two wild animals as a pet. And he reminded me that it was not easy. It was truly a 24-hour-a-day job. They were inspected two times per year by the L.A. Department of Animal Regulations and also by the Department of Fish and Game, making sure they complied with the double security doors and burglar alarms, excuse me, burglar bars on their windows and all the other regulations and rules that they had to follow. Now, he didn't want to get into a discussion of the ethics and moral issues that surround the ownership of an exotic pet, for instance, preventing a wild animal from being raised in his natural environment and socializing with his species of his own kind and being confined to an unnatural limited space and essentially being raised and living a domesticated life. 
listen, it was a different time, and I think we we're starting to think twice about these practices, so I really didn't want to press the issue with him. But he did recognize and admit to me that the wild instinct never goes away in a wild pet. So although tamed and raised from birth, and defanged and declawed, which is another unethical topic we're going to address at another time. His point was, although tamed and loving to them, in an instant, the cat can bite or attack a child or a stranger with any sort of seemingly insignificant trigger, like a smell or simple gesture or someone wearing a strange-looking hat. So at that time, and like I said, I was 15, 16 years old and, and spent quite a bit of time with Buttercup. I thought nothing about the ethical issues surrounding the ownership of a wild animal. In no way did it even cross my mind. In fact, I thought this was the luckiest and most spoiled feline I've ever met. And just as you and I might treat our cat or dog as part of the family, and as a child, so did they. This bobcat was their child. I'll tell you the difference is you and I would feed our cats a 99-cent you know, can of Fancy Feast, and they would give their cat a $15 steak for dinner. But again, not once at that time did I ever think about if it were inhumane or unethical to keep a wild animal as a pet. Now, 30 years later, and as a radio talk show host advocating for the animals, I think often about this, especially when I read about or hear about on the news over and over again people getting mauled by their exotic pets whether a bobcat a python a chimpanzee a bear whatever wild animals should not be pets we know better now reason one as i alluded to before is that holding a wild animal as a pet is cruel to the animal because it prevents him or her from doing what they're supposed to do in the wild. I don't think that people should have the legal ability to prevent a wild animal from leading a normal animal life. And and especially the business of breeding and selling such animals like, say, a boa constrictor. I mean, what's the point of that? To amuse the owner? I really think we need to get away from this. Now, I'm a big proponent of animal sanctuaries. In general, sanctuaries provide a safe place for wild and sometimes not so wild animals to live out their lives after they become unmanageable by owners who don't or who didn't think ahead about the needs of a wild animal or how big a snake or an alligator or a bear would get. And yes, even a bobcat. Or when performing animals are no longer needed to perform. Or when wild animals are rescued after being injured, such that they would not be able to live out their lives in the wild. Sanctuaries provide a place for them. And animal sanctuaries are a great place to bring children to learn about animals and how some people can actually be kind to animals and how to really show them compassion and respect. Children remember these lessons and carry them off into their relationships with other people as well. I mean, compare that to what I think they learned, say, at the circus. That being that it's okay and normal to control and abuse animals, to make them do unnatural things, and to cheer when they do their unnatural things or their tricks for us. To me, these are just not 
the right examples we want to set for our children. The circus, I'll repeat this again, is not the way we want to educate our children about these beautiful living creatures. And how about the fact that a wild animal living as a pet may just kill you or someone you love? Oh, that would never happen to me. Well, until the day it does. Remember last year in um, Oxford, Florida, a two-year-old girl, Shauna Hare, was strangled, asphyxiated by her mother's pet Burmese albino python. This snake, by the way, had escaped the enclosure before, and it was not registered with the state as required. So not only is the child dead, but her mother and boyfriend have been charged with third-degree murder, manslaughter, and child abuse, as they should be. A horror story all around. And just as an aside, the the, uh, Florida Everglades are being overrun with released Burmese pythons, which are set free when the owners get scared or realize they have made a big mistake. Pythons in the Everglades. Think about that. And don't think a big cat won't hurt you or kill you, too. Of course they're cute when they're small. They can hurt you. From 1998 to 2003 in the United States, nine people were killed by privately held tigers. In Texas, for some reason, Texas more than other states, I'm not sure why, there are many, many tigers held as pets. And not long ago, a 10-year-old girl was killed by a tiger while she was helping her stepfather groom the animal. The tiger clamped her head in its jaws. And a 3-year-old was killed by his grandfather's pet when the child was posing for a photograph inside the cage. My God, maybe you can't fix stupid, but we can and we should make it harder for these idiotic adults to endanger children. And even if someone doesn't die or the owner doesn't go to jail, be ready for a civil lawsuit if a snake or a bear or a tiger hurts someone. Animal tax cases are like red meat to lawyers, and they will even help fund the costs of the case if there's a homeowner's insurance policy in place. Did you know that? Remember uh, uh, Carla Nash, who had her face torn off by Travis the chimp? Well, she sued her former friend for $50 million, and her lawyers are trying to obtain permission to sue the state of Connecticut for $150 million, alleging the state's actions and failures to act resulted in grievous injuries to Miss Nash. Look at all the trouble and misery, with the exception of these uh, lovely lawyers that eat this stuff up, that happens when you try to make a pet out of a wild animal. So please, please do not be tempted into getting a baby big cat or a python or a monkey. Visit an animal sanctuary instead. Most people know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. 
Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back to the show. September 28th is World Rabies Day. And Peter and I were talking about this, and we guessed that there are probably a lot of misconceptions about rabies. A few years ago, we spoke to one of the authors of the book, Rabid. You may not want to read 288 pages about rabies, but it was well-reviewed, and we really liked it. But we do get a little freaked out about rabies and the risk it may pose to us and to our dogs. In our backyard on some evenings at dusk, we see bats flying around and not sure why, but we just go inside when they come. Peter especially is afraid of being mistaken for moth and bitten. And then what do you do? And even though we wondered whether these flying shadows are really bats, maybe they're birds. About two months ago, Peter found a small dead one on our back patio. So we know they're real and they are here. Last year, a middle-aged woman from South Carolina died of rabies. That's really scary. So, like I said, the other day, September 28th, was World Rabies Day. So what do we need to know about rabies? Dr. Robert Reed is medical director of VCA Animal Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, and he returns to speak with us. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. We know rabies is a dangerous virus. Tell us a little bit about the rabies virus. Rabies has been around for, well, as far as we know, 4,000 years, at least as far as documentation goes. And it's a, it's a disease that, that's still strong after all that time. Um, it can affect any mammal, um, of course, even people. Um, it's transmitted through bite wounds primarily. It's passed in the saliva. And it's prevalent in our environment in, in wildlife. And as you've touched on in California, the, the main carriers are bats. We don't see it, fortunately, in dogs and cats very often in this country because of public health efforts that began in the 1940s to control it largely through vaccination programs. So we're very fortunate that it's rare for us to encounter uh, rabies in a dog or a cat or even another domestic animal, and even more rare in people. But it hasn't gone away after thousands of years. It's still there. It's still a risk. And efforts to control it still continue and should. And the untreated disease is pretty gruesome, isn't it? It is. It's almost invariably fatal in people and in other species as well. It causes progressive neurologic disease. So typically, Robert, you really don't know if the animals that bite you or attack you is rabid. So what are the steps one should take? Well, fortunately, our society has measures to address that. Um, every community has an animal control agent or agency uh, that will address that. And in fact, I think it's important if the person is bitten by a wild animal or even a dog or a cat and they don't know anything about it, uh, to contact animal control. And, and they have mechanisms in place to address that concern. Does it help to capture the animal if you can? 
definitely does. Of course, anyone who does that should do it safely or perhaps even better should contact animal control and have them do it if that's a possibility um, so that the animal can be tested for rabies. Uh, and, of course, a, pet, uh, a pet's vaccination status has a, a large impact on how that situation would be handled. So if this does occur, the vaccine, it's called a post-exposure prophylaxis. How bad is that? Post-exposure rabies vaccination is not as bad as what we tend to think of. You know, historically, we were worried about the shots in the belly and the painful injections that go on for weeks. And I don't really think that's that's applicable nowadays. The injections that are given are given into the muscle. I think they are painful. They cause a lot of soreness, and everyone would prefer to avoid them um, if they could. And they are expensive. Uh, but, of course, you know, the alternative of worrying about whether your exposure is going to lead to rabies or, of course, getting the disease is unthinkable in comparison. Talk about dogs and cats having rabies. How common is that in the U.S.? It's not very common. And I'm more familiar with our own area, and it's been decades since uh, the Coachella Valley has had a reported case of rabies in a dog or a cat. It is still present in bats, and, and it does pop up every now and then in a bat. Uh, but we haven't had a, a case that we know of in a dog or a cat for a long time. Now, the recommendations for unvaccinated dogs and cats who are possibly infected are, are pretty harsh, huh? Potentially. You know, I think the key thing to remember um, as a pet owner with, with regard to rabies and, and, and issues that come up like that is that the decision about what happens to your pet is going to be made by representatives of animal control agencies uh, as to whether the pet goes through a quarantine, how long the quarantine is. I think in very rare instances, euthanasia, but it's much more likely to be a quarantine situation and the type of quarantine and whatever decisions are made about the pet will be affected by the vaccine status. So it's really important that we maintain um, uh, current vaccines for rabies, against rabies in dogs and cats, even though our, the state of California does not require it in cats. It is required in dogs. Currently, is not required in cats. It's still recommended. So, Dr. Reed, the vaccination is required in dogs. Is it safe? It is a safe vaccina uh, vaccination. You know, we, we don't really encounter reactions to rabies vaccine with any greater frequency than other vaccines, and it's extremely infrequent in dogs. And now in cats, you know, um, the question about rabies vaccination in cats uh, has a little bit of a, a different nuance because cats don't respond exactly the same to vaccinations as dogs do, and in the past have had some fairly unique types of reaction that can occur months or years down the road after the vaccination occurs. So the vaccine manufacturers have made some adjustments in the type of vaccines that they provide, and we now have alternatives for cat vaccinations against rabies that really don't present any, great, any greater risk than the vaccine for dogs, which is very low. And, um, and I think that the risk for rabies and for animal control related problems, uh, especially through exposure to wildlife, um, outweigh the risks of the vaccine. And how often are we supposed to give the vaccine in dogs? To dogs in California, it's every three years. That's a regulation. Uh, the vaccine may have protection beyond that, but it's regulated to be given every three years in adult dogs. It's given once uh, in young dogs after the age of 12 weeks, and then that is repeated one year later 
and then it's every three years. In cats, it depends on which vaccine you use. There are one-year and three-year vaccinations against rabies for cats. Very good. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today. Make sure to visit us on animalstodayradio.com, where you will see all our previous shows and where you can download them free. That's animalstodayradio.com, or you can listen on iTunes. Also, make sure to like us on Facebook and join the discussion. Animals Today gets a lot of its support from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And I hope you'll consider making a donation to help pay for the ongoing broadcast of Animals Today. Each week on Animals Today, we strive to bring you the highest quality, most up-to-date information about all animals, how we treat them, and their place in society while promoting greater respect and kindness towards them. So thanks for your support. That website again is aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. Well, things are getting better for chimps formerly used in research as they begin moving to their new home in Georgia. Attorney Bruce Wagman has been instrumental in making this happen, and he returns with us now. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Peter. How are you? I am great. This is such exciting news and a great story. Uh, It's called, well, the facility is called Project Chimps, right? Correct. Okay, so tell us a little bit about it. Sure. Uh, Well, Project Chimps uh, is an organization that started back in about 2014 when we started looking at the idea of getting research chimpanzees out of the research facilities and to uh, permanent sanctuary. There are sort of two different types of research chimps. Many are owned by the federal government, uh, some 300 or so, and then another 300 are owned by private labs uh, and private industry. And we focus solely on the ones from private labs. And we approached the New Iberia Research Center, which is in New Iberia, Louisiana, and is affiliated with the University of Louisiana, and entered into a sort of groundbreaking agreement with them whereby they would let us take and they would retire all of their chimpanzees who had been used in research previously. So it's been a collaboration between us and the New Iberia Research Center since 2014. Once we entered into that agreement, we of course needed to build and create the facility and that's been ongoing since uh, about the same time, since 2014, and, and we got a former gorilla sanctuary, which we purchased, and we have 246 acres in Blue Ridge, Georgia, about 90 miles outside of Atlanta, 
where we are in the process of bringing all the chimpanzees from New Iberia Research Center and that lab to our sanctuary. Incredible. Now, please give a little background as to what possibly motivated New Iberia to want to transfer these chimps and give this up. Sure. Um, uh, Chimpanzee research has been slowly getting phased out over the last 10 years or so, and uh, when we entered into the agreement, New Iberia had actually already retired its chimpanzees because chimpanzees in research just are too expensive and really not good models for much of the research, if not all of the research that's being done out there. During the course of our uh, relationship with New Iberia, the federal government also shifted the landscape for chimpanzees and moved their status under the Endangered Species Act from threatened to endangered. So that meant that at that point in time, you could never, almost never, use a chimpanzee for research again. But, but to to repeat, New Iberia had already retired their chimps, and and so we were a a good partner to move their chimps to a, a new facility and move them out of New Iberia. So what's involved in building a new facility for hundreds of chimps, right? Hundreds of chimps, yes. Uh, eventually, uh, our our goal is, of course, to get all of the new Iberia chimps, which number about 230, um, and possibly chimpanzees from elsewhere. Um, what's involved? Well, the the first thing, maybe not the first, but the most important is lots and lots of money. Um, you know, this is a... As some people don't know, chimpanzees in captivity live between 50 and 60 years of age. Uh, many of these chimpanzees we're getting are under 20, some even under 10. So this is a, a long-term project. It's also the fact that chimpanzees are just slightly better probably than humans on getting out of uh, any place they are in. So you have to be very secure in what you're building. And at the same time, of course, we want to build them something where they have a lot of freedom, have the ability to interact both with each other and with the environment. So it's uh, an ongoing process uh, of construction uh, and a big capital campaign as well as taking care of them. So some of the, there were some buildings on site already that had been gorilla uh, facilities, and gorilla facilities don't hold chimpanzees. They need a lot of reinforcement. Gorillas for one thing, can't climb. Uh, And so we've just been putting an awful lot of money and effort into uh, building the facility so that they can can live there. Right now we have uh, four what we call chimpanzee villas, and they surround a six-acre habitat, which is a, a forested habitat that they get to go out in and interact in on a regular basis. And we currently have 49 of the 220 or 230 chimpanzees we hope to get. So you're talking steel and concrete and real industrial strength sort of materials. Yep, we have, I think the number is 20 welders on site, almost, uh, well, definitely seven days a week and almost 24-7, constantly reinforcing the steel, putting up the steel, everything's well embedded in concrete uh, and and that's that's what you need to hold the chimpanzee and double locks on on everything. They can figure out how to get out. So um, a very 
a, a very rigid um, and, you know, safety-conscious security system so that all our caregivers at the high level of caregivers are double-checking locks to make sure everything's locked every single time because it only takes one time to, for a chimpanzee to get out, and that's, that's a problem. And they're big and very strong. We remember that horrible case a few years ago of a, a chimp really disfiguring, exactly. you know, they're big and very strong. You never know what they're going to do. They might seem very friendly for a while, but then they might turn on you, and they can do some damage very quickly. And, and they are wild animals. You know, there's no direct contact. Uh, you don't go in cages with chimpanzees or anything like that, and that's, that's why we build a facility that's secure for them, secure for our staff, and also allows them to go outside and interact with each other in a habitat uh, where they feel you know, somewhat like they're in a forest. They do interact with our employees as well as with uh, the occasional visitor uh, on a regular basis, but it's always through, uh, actually often through windows that are around the habitat as well as um, through their enclosures. How do the chimps sort out their relationships? How many chimps, for instance, do you allow in a given habitat or villa? Sure. No, that is one of the most fascinating, constantly enjoying, enjoyable, constantly humorous things to watch, and also a very, very arduous uh, task for our um, our caregivers, who are some of them who are specialized in integrating and introducing chimpanzees. The the answer to your question about numbers is uh, eventually we hope to have and and we do already have some of the villas with 20 uh, or more chimps, but we introduce them one at a time through a very careful process to make sure that they get along. So one chimp gets introduced slowly but surely to everybody who's already in the villa, and if he or she works out, then we go to the next one, then we do dyads. Uh, and then once they're introduced and integrated, then it's a, it's pretty much a happy family. You know, there's disputes sometimes, just like in anybody's house. Um, and chimpanzee disputes can get frightening, especially to the human ear and eye, but um, they're just working things out, and they're constantly working things out. And Project Chimps, this is an accredited sanctuary, right? Global Federation of Animal Sanctuary accredited? Oh, yeah. No, we've got several accreditations. Mm -hmm. So, yes, Project Chimps, we're, of course, the 501c3 nonprofit, um, and we are accredited by what what you mentioned, what we call GFAS, the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. We're also accredited by NAPSA, which is the North American Primate Sanctuary Alliance, uh, also accredited and um, in compliance with the United States Department of Agriculture requirements under the Animal Welfare Act, as well as the uh, laws of the state of Georgia. So these chimps enjoy long lives. You have probably a plan that goes for many decades out. Exactly, yeah. Um, at least I don't expect, unfortunately, to see the end of Project Chimps, and that's only because I won't be here, but the chimps will be. So, yeah, that, and that's why, you know, it's a, while it's, it's a situation where the chimps are very happy and healthy, it's also a situation where we need to plan for 50 years out and, and for an awful lot of millions of dollars to make sure that they're cared for all the way through, both on the maintenance side as well as the, the feeding side as well as the medical side. We've got our own freestanding veterinary clinic on site. Uh, and so, yeah, we're, we're planning for that well into the future. 
Will this be a facility that the general public will be able to visit? So it will never be um, absolutely open to the general public, but we do have uh, regular events where the public is allowed in. Uh, One of the things that uh, Ali Krumpacker, our executive director, started and just gone over fantastically in the Blue Ridge community, but people from several states coming to is something called Discovery Days. And on those days, um, I think a few hundred people show up and everybody gets a private tour, uh, well, a a tour with a, a docent and, and several other people, not each person gets a private tour, uh, and gets to see chimpanzees in the habitat, hopefully, uh, and gets to view the facility. And we have a lot of um, booths and those kind of things to educate people about chimpanzees. So those are the, that's the way you can get to see Project Chimps. We, on our website, we, we advertise and indicate when we have those kind of events. So why don't you tell us what the website is so people can uh, learn more and start donating? You bet. Uh, we're at projectchimps.org, nice and easy. Um, and there's uh, donate buttons on most pages. You can sponsor uh, some of our chimpanzees that we have, so we'll really get to know and, and learn more about individual chimpanzees. There's many different ways to, to get involved. We have an Amazon wish list and, and many different ways to help us out. We also have a very strong volunteer program if you're if you're near blue ridge georgia uh we're i think we have something like 80 to 100 volunteers now with a waiting list of a couple hundred more because the local community is very excited and um, happy about us being there which is great to have that kind of support that is fabulous bruce wagman representing project chimps what a wonderful story and uh, a better life for these former research animals. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks, Bruce. The team, our group of unpaid but dedicated product evaluators, would like to report on the Licky Mat from Hyperpet. These are flat, rubbery mats with raised, textured surfaces you spread food onto, and as the name suggests, pets lick the surface to get the food, which can take quite a while as their tongues try to reach into the nooks and crannies of the mat. With the model for at large to extra large dogs, the Licky Mat Buddy, foods like cream cheese and soft veggies, when spread into the mat, keep dogs occupied and entertained, as well as providing a soothing and calming effect. A little bit of food goes a long way. For small to medium cats, the Licky Mat Soother helps them to be calm and relaxed. Just spread bits of softened fish or savory gravy onto the mat and your cats will just love it. Our dogs and cats all used the appropriate mats and really enjoyed them, and the mats have held up well to repeated use. They are non-toxic, microwave-proof, and freezer-friendly. That's Licky Mats from HyperPet. Thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in our 10th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts, Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. So, Peter, we talked about September being Save the Koala Month. Yes. There are two other animal holidays I'd like to mention. Okay. One is National Iguana Awareness Day, September 8th. 
Peter, you've seen an iguana, right? Yeah, I, I know about them. So they, they're these big greenish colored tropical American lizard with the spiny crest along the back. Yeah, I knew a guy who had one as a pet in his apartment room. Really? Tell me about that. It was pretty silly. If you ask me, you've got a grown man. He must have been older than 30 years old at the time. And he's got a tank, you know, maybe a hundred gallon tank or 80 gallon tank with this large, it must have been a two foot long lizard. And that's like his, his pet. And that's this lizard's life is to just live in this, in this tank. Once in a while, I would let it out and to explore the room and it just looked miserable. Yeah. So I don't know why people want iguanas as pets, but I, there's something alluring about them. Well, National Iguana Awareness Day, September 8th. In honor of that, I thought we'd talk a little bit about iguanas, green iguanas. And I got the following interesting facts about green iguanas from a website page I found called Hayden's Animal Facts. But here are five interesting facts about them. They are very big lizards growing up to two meters long. They often live near water so that they can swim away from predators. I didn't know they swam. Yeah, I know. Isn't that interesting? And despite how scary they look, they Mm -hmm. do look sort of scary. They only eat plants, including fruit, flowers, and leaves, and are very docile, so people often keep them as pets, unfortunately, like your friend. Young green iguanas will often eat the poo of grown-up iguanas to get the necessary bacteria required to digest their food. And finally, they are a very common species and are found in Central and South America and many Caribbean islands. They also have been introduced to parts of the United States. Okay, that's everything I need to know about iguanas. Thank That's you. it. Okay. That's exactly right. Another notable animal holiday in September is International Red Panda Day, September like 19th. Oh, they're very cute. Yes. I don't know anything about cute. them. Very cute. Have you ever seen a picture of a red I, panda? Yeah, I had my Facebook profile picture was one of those cute little things some time ago. Okay. Well, that animal, the logo of the internet browser Firefox. Oh. Right? That's a red panda. I know that. Firefox is one of the nicknames of red pandas, and it's called Firefox because of the reddish fur and the fox-like snout. I also read that the red panda is commonly called the wa because of the wa call that it makes. Oh. You know, I did, uh, you told me you were looking at red pandas, and I did listen to some of their vocalizations Does it online. sound like a wah? I didn't really get the wah. I did get a couple of bark-like sounds, and then I also got this sort of high-pitched screeching sort of sound. It sounded almost bird-like. It was annoying. They call that twittering. So they are the size of a raccoon and weigh about 7 to 14 pounds. So this is about 5% of the giant panda's weight. And by the way, they're not closely related to the giant panda. Mm. Taxonomically, red pandas aren't actually pandas at all. Do you know where you find red pandas? I'm going to guess China. Yeah, native to the eastern Himalayas and southwestern China. Male red pandas will fight with each other by standing on their hind legs and boxing with their That's claws. Cute. Okay. <laughs> it looks cute, doesn't it? These rare animals will eat fruit, berries, blossoms, insects, and bird eggs. But what do you think they primarily eat? Oh, let's see. If I was, I would want to eat a mouse. Bamboo. Oh, yeah, panda's daily diet consists almost entirely of the leaves, stems, and shoots of various bamboo species. This reliance on bamboo makes them vulnerable to any loss of their habitat, currently the major threat to their survival. I read poaching and habitat loss have left only 10,000 wild mm. adult red pandas remaining in the world. Unfortunately, not that surprising to me. 
Lori, recently in the news, there have been a number of really sad stories about the effects of xylitol, particularly when dogs are eating xylitol. They get very sick and sometimes die. And in fact, the FDA has just released a consumer health information bulletin talking about xylitol and dogs. And you can review this at fda.gov slash consumer. But it's a pretty comprehensive uh, warning about all the foods that contain xylitol, including chewing gum. And I'm going to talk about the specific brands of gum in just a minute, so you can be aware of that. But the xylitol is really dangerous to dogs. You know why? Because it causes a strong release of insulin from the pancreas in dogs, but not in people. And this causes profound decrease in blood sugar, and that can come on in just a few minutes and can be life-threatening. Symptoms of xylitol poisoning in dogs includes vomiting and then decreased activity, weakness, staggering, incoordination, collapse, and seizures, and death. So if you even think your dog has eaten xylitol, you want to bring him or her to the vet or animal hospital immediately. Even before showing these symptoms. Even before. And they may want to keep your dog there for 12 to 24 hours to monitor to make sure this uh, doesn't occur. And you know, interestingly, cats really don't care to eat xylitol. So it's not really a problem with, with them. So what are some of the foods containing xylitol? Well, the items, I'll say, are some sugar-free candies, uh, toothpaste. Some human toothpaste contains xylitol, so you don't want to let your dog near that. And that's the other reason why you don't want to brush your dog's teeth with human toothpaste, by the way. Mouthwash, some nut butters. That's a new thing. Some of these nut butters have added xylitol for sweetness. But the biggest offender appears to be chewing gum. So don't let your dog near chewing gum. And mints too, right, Peter? Yeah, you bet. Some sugar-free mints are sweetened with xylitol. So here are some of the gum brands that contain xylitol. Spry gum, Epic gum, Mirident, Trident and Trident Fusion with xylitol, Trident Extra Care, Icebreakers, Ice Cube, Sugar-Free, and Zelly's Xylitol Gum. So be careful. Don't let your dogs near any of those products. Lori, you know, explosive sniffing dogs have become the gold standard, the best method for detecting explosives at airports, making sure they don't get on our planes. A recent investigation looked at the success rate or the failure rate of tests to see how accurately the dogs and their handlers can detect explosives. So they obtained information from January 1st, 2013 through June 15th, 2015, and that yielded a total of 402 tests at major airports around the country. 87% of the time, the dogs passed. Unfortunately, they missed the rest of the time. But the best performance appears to be the team at Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport. They only had two failures in 75 tests, 3% failure rate approximately. So here's the thinking about what makes an excellent canine and canine team. First is that you really need daily practice. It also means the handlers need to constantly practice their skills of reading the dog's cues. Just having the dogs work at the airports since they detect explosives so rarely is not enough to keep them sharp. So you need to work with real explosives practicing all the time. And the teams really need to be sharp and the protocols need to be constantly evaluated and modified to make sure that the best performance possible is achieved. 
Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.